Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. This week, we're coming back with our special guest, Dr. Jonathan Trobe. If you didn't check out his episode from a few weeks ago, you can get his biography uh, there. But to everyone who hasn't listened to the episode, he is a world-renowned neuro-ophthalmologist, head of neuro-ophthalmology at the Kellogg Eye Center. And relevant for this episode, he is a frequent expert witness for medical malpractice cases. So after finishing recording that previous episode, I not at all out of personal interest, really wanted to bring him back on to talk about medical malpractice. So thanks for coming back, Dr. Trope. Thanks for having me. So, I, you know, the first thing I want to ask about is who is this talk kind of relevant for? You know, from my perspective, I'm a good doctor. You know, I do great informed consents. I was well-trained by my residency to do that, to show compassion for patients. So I don't think I'm the kind of guy who's going to get sued. So who is this targeted for? Ben, you are a very good doctor, and you know you probably will get sued. What? You know, I hate to tell you that over a practice lifetime, it's pretty well guaranteed that every ophthalmologist, every physician is going to get sued at least once. Wow. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is that a specialty-dependent thing? or? Well, it is. Uh, we all know that there are some high-risk specialties, and you probably think of OB first. Yeah, I thought, I'm not an obstetrician. How am I going to get sued? Yeah, well, ophthalmologists get sued. Yeah. Uh, not as often as neurosurgeons. Well, I shouldn't say not as often. Not The claims are not as high- uh, in dollar amounts because of the consequences of a neurosurgical disaster hmm. are, are per- perhaps greater, but blindness is up there. Right. So before we go deeper, Dr. Trump, can you explain to us what the tort system is? Well, uh, Ben, you're asking about the tort structure. Most of you probably, you're not lawyers, so you may not be familiar with that term. The word tort uh, is familiar to every lawyer. It, it comes from the French word meaning harm or bad. And the system that we have in this country to redress uh, the grievance of plaintiffs who believe they've been harmed is the tort system, which is litigation. And what it means is it's an adversarial system, and we have one side going against the other, and you either win or you don't. And um, it turns out it's a very inefficient—everybody knows this. It's a very inefficient system. Uh, it's very expensive, and yet we keep doing it. And you may wonder why. Uh, well, many people, most doctors will say it's because the lawyers want to enrich their, you know, their, they want to fill their pockets. And uh, to some degree, that's true. They lobby heavily to keep it going because there's a huge, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure of, of malpractice law. Uh, it turns out that other systems are also flawed. What, what kind of other systems are there, out of curiosity? Well, the other systems are those where you just compensate patients without making it a fault system, without bringing in litigators, and you just simply reward somebody if, you, if they can prove. And you know, you know this very well for the automobile accident um, structure, because if you can prove in many states where, that you uh, have had an, uh, a medical harm from an accident, there's no fault involved, and you just get compensated. Interesting. But with the tort system, it works differently. Works completely differently. There, it's, it's, uh, it's a battle. Yeah. 
And, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, independently, and I think there's studies that show this too, that for a lot of physicians, getting sued is probably the worst moment in their career. Does that sound? It's, it's terrible. It's yeah. terrible. I, I somehow have never been sued, but I, I, I expect it will happen if I live much longer. And, you know, the fact is it's a terrible experience. Yeah. No matter whether you feel that you, you know, have done something wrong or not, you're going to be dragged through a terrible experience. You know, you mentioned that uh, neurosurgery is one of the highest, you know, at least uh, payouts in terms of the tort system. So I, I assume then that perhaps neuro-ophthalmology is at a similar level where neurologic, you know, irreversible neurologic damage may lead to a lot of torts. Does that mean that neuro-ophthalmologists are the most exposed to this problem? You know, I, it's not really neuro-ophthalmologists, it's ophthalmologists, because, you know, a lot of neurosurgical, neuro-ophthalmological cases show up in ophthalmologist offices first and may never even get to neuro-ophthalmologists. Yeah. So if you, if you want to think of it that way, if somebody's got uh, a, a delayed diagnosis of optic nerve problem or chiasmal problem, that's, you know, that's going to be a lawsuit. So, you know, I think for the rest of this, what, what we can do is go through some examples of real-world cases, and then we can talk about, I, I think in the first half of this, talk about how can we protect ourselves if I'm a young, about-to-start-practicing physician from malpractice. And then we can talk about maybe from the other side, like how can you review malpractice cases if you're called on to be an expert witness, as you have been, Dr. Trobe. So let's let's take that example that you just alluded to. So, and obviously for privacy purposes, I'm going to completely obfuscate the private details of these patients. But let's say that there's a case of a 60-some-year-old man who comes in complaining of some vision loss in one of their eyes. The comprehensive ophthalmologist sees them, sees there's a one-plus nuclear sclerotic cataract, a little bit of cortical, takes them to the OR, cleans it out, puts in a great lens, great surgical outcome. But the patient's vision doesn't get better. And then six months later, they complain of continuing progressive vision loss. It turned out the ophthalmologist never checked an APD, never did visual fields, and then they eventually get a bitemporal hemianopsia. Then the patient is eventually referred. They have a pituitary tumor, but surgery does not, for the pituitary tumor, doesn't do a thing for their vision. So, you know, I think using this as a, um, as a case to frame things, you know, is this a situation that, maybe the answer is obvious, but is this a situation where someone can get sued? Like, what, what do real-world lawsuits look like, and what cases do they typically happen? Okay, so this gives us an opportunity to review the elements of medical malpractice or medical negligence. The first thing is you have to show that you, the doctor who's being sued, had a duty to the plaintiff, the patient. That's usually pretty easy because if the patient comes to your office and you take care of them, you've held yourself out as a physician, then you have a duty to the patient. That's easy. Where this comes up a little bit more subtly is if you're offering, for example, information over the internet or over the telephone to somebody that you don't know, and that's very tempting, and you should not do that. Right. It's very tempting. Right. I mean, we get 
uh, email messages from people all over the planet saying, you know, I have a problem with my eye. I've seen doctors. I'm not getting any better. Uh, I've heard about you. Uh, do you think you can help me out? And the answer is, what I tell people is there are many good doctors in your neighborhood. Uh, if you like, I can give you some names, but I cannot give you information in this way. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell folks, Kind of, if you were like in my generation, you may go on forums like Reddit or Discord or you know like online forums, and like very frequently, you know, patients they're sad, they're desperate, they're looking for advice, and I, you know, I have certainly been very tempted to go on those forums and say, oh look, this is probably just dry eye, but I, you know, hopefully that it's clear that that can lead to a lot of problems, and you know, I've, I've definitely seen these emails too. People will see that like you know on this podcast we did an episode on like a macular dystrophy, then I, I've seen emails from patients with those diseases emailing me for advice. And, you know, even if I really want to give it, if it seems obvious to me, like who knows what they actually have. So I hope no one is is tempted or or I'm sure maybe more commonly if a patient calls in that you've never seen, that it's not been seen by your practice, but you're the resident taking triage, you want to give them advice. But really, you know, as Dr. Trope just said, I think it's a really bad idea if you haven't seen them. It is. And it's very tempting. And you, as you say, you're getting calls at night, you're on duty. Uh, we always say here at Michigan, bring the patient in. Don't venture opinions that where you th feel you don't have enough information or where you could possibly really be doing harm. Yeah. So you just have to be careful about that. All right, if we go back to those elements of malpractice that we talked about, the first one is that duty. The second one is the question of whether you breach the standard of care. Mm -hmm. That's always a, a tricky one. But breaching the standard of care means you have to know what the standard of care is. And the standard of care is what an equivalently trained physician in that circumstance would have done exercising reasonable judgment. This can get confusing because if you're a first-year resident, what is the level of standard of care that you are being judged against? And the answer is it's the level of training and expertise that your attending physician has. That's mm -hmm. tricky. Mm -hmm. So if you mess up on a cataract operation and you're being supervised by the attending physician, you can be sued too at the level of expertise that's expected of, a, of an advanced cataract surgeon. So that's, that's, wow. that's hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if, you know, as you say, the standard of care is what an equivalently trained person would do, you know, I, I think there are circumstances where, you know, I've read some super like hot off the presses article about how you can treat this one thing. And then like, let's pretend it's like I'm supposed to inject steroids in someone's eye for X retina condition. And then the patient does poorly because of whatever, they get a cataract glaucoma, et cetera. Um, you know, if they called on someone else and then they weren't familiar with this, whatever article that said I was, you know, injecting steroids is a good thing. Is, am I judged against that person's opinion or does like scientific, the most advanced scientific literature come into play? In okay, so standard of care is not, is not optimal therapy. It's what most people do. So this is why we have these guidelines, these practice guidelines. It's what most doctors in that circumstance would have done, using, using reasonable judgment. Sure. So if this, if this is a standard, for example, let's say uh, cross-linking uh, treatment for keratoconus. Sure. It's now an accepted therapy, and if you did that on somebody and it didn't work out well and you did it properly, that's perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. 
So now that we get to the next thing, which is, by the way, if you make a mistake, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can be successfully sued. You have to have caused a harm. And so the, the plaintiff has to prove that what you did wrong, let's say, say you know, it's easy to prove that you'd made a mistake, that, that that caused a harm, and that's called proximate cause. You have to say that led to that. A led to B. And that there's a substantial harm. I mean, if you're left blind, that's terrible. But if, you're, you're not, if you have a, a reduction in visual acuity in one eye and your other eye is perfectly good, that's going to be harder for the plaintiff to prove that that's a substantial harm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a lot of it has to do with the degree of disability. And, you know, pain and suffering is no longer uh, an acceptable, in most places, is not an acceptable way to get compensation unless you can unless you really are have been badly harmed in many more ways than just medical interesting so but i guess in our field you know vision loss is pretty objective and documentable so especially if it's in both eyes interesting um well you know what we're we're st we're still st remember then if we summarize the things you had a duty you breached the duty you caused the harm and the harm was substantial. That's it. Those are the four points of medical malpractice. And you were asking me what kinds of cases come up for ophthalmologists because our listeners are mostly either in training or they're in practice. And I can tell you that it's sins of omission and sins of commission. We tend to think of things of sins of commission. You did something to somebody, you injected the wrong dose of of, a, of an agent into the eye, you know, tap and inject, and you got the wrong dose. You kill the retina. Uh, that's, that's obviously a, a, a terrible thing. Uh, but if if we say that the patient was already blind to begin with, then that would say, you know, that you didn't cause the harm. Even though you killed the retina, it was already sightless because the optic nerve was already damaged, you see? So that, you know, you have to, you have to prove that what you did caused the harm that you're, you know, that you're claiming redress for. And like on the flip side, let's say someone came in with transient monocular vision loss and then I didn't think to get, you know, a carotid or like a CT head and neck, but if they never got neurologic or ophthalmic injury from missing the whatever plaque, then I actually, I, I can't be sued. It's no cause of action. That, that case will be dismissed. Won't, won't ever get anywhere. Interesting. Because there's just nothing to, you know, there's no harm. No harm done. Yeah. Even though I made it... A, what could be considered by like another physician a grievous error that didn't cause harm. You know, I mean, it's great to know the outline of the three requirements that, that can lead to a successful lawsuit. So how can I protect myself from getting sued? Yeah, well, they, you know, every um, plaintiff's and defense attorney involved in medical malpractice will give you the same three guidelines. Number one, be nice to the patient, which is really sounds pretty dumb. Obviously, you're going to be nice to the people, to people, but it also means that you are answering their expectations. You're listening to them. And that is something that, honestly, I'm not sure we always do very well. Mm -hmm. We get very busy. We get sometimes frustrated. It's the end of the day. You know, you have things piling up on you. We're human. Yeah. And if the patient f feels that persistently they are not being well treated and they don't really like the physician, 
then they're much more likely to take something that has happened to them and sue for it. So that's the first thing. The second thing that people always talk about is good documentation. If you don't document things well, then plaintiff's attorneys will have a field day in court because they'll say, look how sloppy this is. And you will be very difficult for you to say that something was done in examining the patient if it wasn't documented. If it's not documented, it wasn't done. So you, I can't just say in court, well, I, I did test the APD. I just didn't write down. I tested the APD. Yeah. You know, I guess going back to being nice to patients, you know, as, as just a, a counterpoint, it doesn't seem like how nice I am is relevant to the three things that you talked about. So how can, I'm not saying that we should be mean to our patients, but how can being nice protect us from lawsuits? Well, again, uh, people sue, why do people sue anyway? I mean, they sue because they feel they've been aggrieved. They're aggrieved. Mm -hmm. They're unhappy and they think you caused it. If they know, we know from, there's plenty of literature that says that, for example, family practitioners who see people from kind of cradle to grave don't get sued because patients know them, they like them, they depend on them. It's the impersonal contact, the poor communication that sets people off and makes them more liable to be angry, you know, or angry. I mean, as it is, there's a lot of anger on the part of patients versus their doctors. I can tell you that if you get into a courtroom and you are being uh, going before a jury, and that may be another thing that we're going to get to in a minute about how you know you should behave, juries have a tendency to side with the plaintiff in a malpractice case. They are more sympathetic because they are patients. Mm -hmm. They're not doctors. And they see a doctor coming in in a nice suit uh, driving a very fancy car. They know that that doctor is earning 10 times more money than they are. Because remember, this is a jury. And, uh, you know, uh, good luck trying to be sympathetic to the jury, which, by the way, is another very important thing that um, defense attorneys will tell you. If you have to go on the stand, uh, you should try to be sympathetic to the jury. Don't be arrogant. Don't, you know, don't speak in jargon, don't do distancing maneuvers. It doesn't endear the jury. Yeah, and I can see how that'd be tempting to say like, oh, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the superior doctor who has all this training. It must be tempting and easy to do that, you know? It is. I mean, it's been tempting for me. And another thing that I will tell you is that if you're in deposition, and you will be, you're going to be deposed. I guess you know what a deposition is. That's, a, that's where you're under oath and you're giving testimony. Uh, to um, uh, attorneys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have uh, had to do this mostly as a treating physician. Mm -hmm. And I find myself getting into conflict with the plaintiff's attorney because they go after you uh, and try to uh, make you, uh, you know, lose your cool. Uh, that's a tactic that is very common among plaintiff's attorneys. And very often, it's hard to resist because the, they seem to be baiting you. Because it's to their advantage. It is. And another thing that I would say is that sometimes doctors, when they're giving testimony, uh, are not completely uh, apprised of all the facts. They haven't looked over the records carefully. And you can bet that the attorneys will. Mm -hmm. They're used to this, 
and they know which things physicians tend to overlook. And if they get you in testimony being vague about facts of a case, guess how convincing you're going to be for a jury when they play that testimony in front of you or quiz you about it in the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the attorneys must be at such an advantage compared to us because this is like what they do. And, you know, we're hopefully it might be like the one time you could sue it or, or, or whatnot. Like it doesn't come up so much for us. Which reminds me that my wife, who's an attorney, has said, and, and other attorneys that I've talked to have said, that if you are ever involved in anything, especially as a trainee, be sure that you have a lawyer, either from the institution where you're being trained or somewhere else, get your own, before you give any testimony, before you have any encounters with the legal process. Because So you're saying that I can't just rely on my medical expertise to carry me through. Yeah, you know, most of us believe that we're after medical truth, what we think is the best analysis of the facts. Attorneys, are, their job is advocacy. Mm-hmm. They are advocating for their client. It's a light, slightly different objective. That's very interesting. Were there other uh, techniques or ways that, or principles we should follow to try to protect ourselves from successful lawsuits? Well, obviously, try not to make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the thing is, we are going to make mistakes. Uh, some of the things that may be more subtle to you besides an obvious mistake, delay in diagnosis is a big one. I'm not sure that everybody realizes that. You know, you think, okay, I don't want to do make a mistake with cataract surgery, but delay in diagnosis is also bad. Of course, misdiagnosis is bad. One that you might not think of is warning the patient properly about things. So, for example, uh, a a badly constructed informed consent is grounds for legal action. So, if a patient, for example, uh, I've seen this in um, spine surgery. I had a uh, there was a case, a rather famous case, of a, a very, very prominent person in the United States who had spine surgery, and the informed consent did not say anything about vision loss. And the patient got ischemic optic neuropathy as the result of that and was blind. And said, you know, this is not, it was not in the informed consent. Had I known, I would have said, no, I don't, I don't think I would, would have done it. The defense, of course, was it's a rare event. Right. Uh, and and so it gets very complicated. This is where this is why a malpractice is such a complicated thing because here you're you know you're going back and forth as to whether or not you had a right to claim something here, and the facts can be very complicated. Right. For example, that case where we had the patient who didn't have the APD checked mm-hmm. and ended up with a pituitary adenoma. Mm-hmm. Do we know that? earlier diagnosis would have prevented the outcome. How do we know that? Um, by, I mean, by tracking visual fields, but I guess we never yeah. visual fields. Visual fields weren't done. Yeah. So you could easily claim, and a, an expert witness on the defense side might say, you know, chances are that abnormality, that lesion, and that visual defect was already present at the time when the doctor made that mistake. Mm-hmm. That's a frequent defense. Mm-hmm. The truth is, as bad as malpractice is, most of the time, the doctor gets off. 
it's very hard to prove. I would say, and their statistics support this, is that a settlement, either in losing the the litigation process or in in making an offer of a settlement that's accepted, uh, that occurs in fewer than 40% of cases, less than half of cases. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Most of the time, the doctor, it wins. Either wins or the case is dismissed. I mean, I you know, I don't want to mislead you into thinking that, as you be, you began by saying, okay, I'm a good doctor, I'm not going to get sued, and I told you you would get sued, uh-huh. and then now I'm saying, yeah, if you get sued, chances are you'll come off easily, yeah. and you won't have to. If you don't win, or if a settlement is made on your behalf, your name will enter a registry, national registry, and it will be there forever. It can be, it's a public registry. It's a public registry, which if you then have to get hospital privileges and you're asked to um, have, an, uh, you know, put in paperwork that shows that you have or have never been involved in any legal proceeding, you would have to say, admit that you were, and that, that would be, you know, that that's hard. That would right. hold up the whole process. It isn't to say that you won't be able to do it, but there are some places where it can be very difficult. Right. Or maybe a patient could, like who's trying to consider whether they want to trust you with their surgery or whatever it is that they might look you up and look you up. Yes. Up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a blot on your shield. Yeah. On your escutcheon. Yeah. My permanent record. So, you know, uh, with all of this, if this were, if I were an attorney speaking to you, I would say that the deck is stacked in favor of physicians. That's the way they view it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't see it that way. We see, uh, we see it as an intrusion on our practices right. and also a distortion of our practices. You know, right. this thing about defensive medicine is for real. It's not as big as people continue to say it is, but it definitely is a bad side effect of tort litigation malpractice. Right. right. It's not good. Like ordering those labs that really didn't be ordered, or that MRI that really didn't need to be ordered, but you get it anyways. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're thinking about ordering more tests in order to protect yourself, yes, but probably even more important is paying attention to the patient and answering expectations. If, if, if the patient comes in and you have allayed their expectations by pretty much an, you know, answering the things that are worrying them, I, I, I often bring this up with our residents, that when sometimes when patients come in and they say, you know, there's something wrong with my vision and you don't find anything. Or if you do find a very minor thing and you say this is not going to cause great problems, it might be worthwhile trying to figure out what's the patient really worried about. And sometimes I have noticed that I will say, you know, this is definitely not cancer. It is not stroke. It's not some other very serious vision problems that you might have heard about. Is there something in particular? And then the patient will say, you know, my uh, everybody in my family uh, lost vision from retinitis pigmentosa. Do I have that? And then you say no. They may not have heard that you said no, but now you've had the opportunity to, once you've under, and that's what the that's the kind of thing that patients really uh, hope to get from doctors. Right, right. They have like often have a specific fear or concern. 
Even though that's not maybe what we're concerned about, it's what they're concerned about. It's their agenda, not yours. Got it. Then I'll ask before we kind of move on to the next case. So let's say that we, we've realized you made some kind of error that we that seems to have, like, you know, we fulfilled the three criteria you mentioned before. We caused a, a, a definite harm by either omission or commission. You know, before things move on to a lawsuit, you know, you're with the patient in the room, you've realized you missed whatever it is. What do you suggest? How do you suggest we treat it? Treat the patient or, or discuss it with the patient? So, Ben, what you're, I think, getting at is whether you admit to a mistake that you, this is very hard right. for a doctor to do. First of all, you feel terrible. Yeah. Um, and the answer is yes, you should admit it. You should say, you know, I, uh, during the surgery, um, I, and I, th- I think the case that I, I gave to you before we met today mm-hmm. is a patient who, let's say, loses the lens or loses vitreous, and that that's a, an unhappy result. Right. I think you have to tell the patient. You have to come out of the operating room and tell them, or you tell them at the first, first post-operative visit, because denying it, uh, shielding it, you know, uh, not owning up is bound to get you into trouble. Yeah, yeah. So, and that I think that's a great segue into this um, second case we'll talk about, and we'll, you know, we can we can talk about from both directions, but maybe it's good to because it, I certainly have no, I've never heard of um, a discussion about what to do if you're called on as an expert witness. But let's say we have that case where um, there's a patient they had cataract surgery, there was there was vitreous loss, but then let's say the ophthalmologist put in like a sulcus lens or something and was kind of able to wave it off and and not really discuss that with the patient, did not follow your advice. Then the patient ends up with chronic uveitis, they have chronic you know cystoid macular edema, and eventually get a retinal attachment. So let's say that we. The, the, you, the listener, are called on then in, as part of this case as an expert witness. Maybe the first question is, how does that process happen? Like, how do attorneys find expert witnesses? Yeah, I mean, you you know that what we're talking about here is how, how, many, how many different ways can you be called in to testify? And there are pretty much three ways. Either you are a treating physician, and this could happen to any of our trainees who are listening. You're, you're, you, you've participated in the care of a patient, mm-hmm. and that patient is suing. Maybe not you, but mm-hmm. somebody else. Okay, so that would be one way. Yeah. Second way is that you have accumulated expertise, and that's not going to happen to you as a trainee until you've had several years out there. But by the way, not that many. I mean, Ben, you're, you've completed, you will complete a retinal fellowship. Uh, you're going to be considered an expert in retinal diseases, and you could easily be called. Hmm. You know, how, how does your name get known? Well, uh, a lot of it is word of mouth. Right. Uh, some some uh, colleague might recommend you mm-hmm. to do it because they say, you know, I know Ben Young. He's a good guy. He's He can think clearly. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in wondering whether you should accept to do this. Right. Okay. So why should I accept? Right. Why should you accept? Okay. Uh, I mean, I do it. So why do I do yeah. it? I mean, I can tell you that I have a, a, a bizarre interest in these cases as because I learn from you know you learn from mistakes. So if you haven't made the mistake, why won't you make this mistake? Mm-hmm. And so now you find out you know vicariously how mistakes are made and where they lead. 
that was kind of the point of our last episode too, you know, where we talked about five mistakes that people have made, you know, with, with patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, many of those cases have, have been, I've, I've drawn those from medical legal experience. So that's a, that's one reason. The other reason is a sort of a, and I'm, I'm a little, I have to be a little careful about this. I feel a little bit of a duty to either police what is going on in the medical field or defend a doctor who has been unfairly sued. Mm -hmm. Or let's say unfair, yes, unfairly sued. Mm -hmm. And that occurs a lot. Um, this is well known, is a lot of lawsuits are unfair. Mm -hmm. No question. So that's why I do it. You know, you can make some money doing this too. Right. How does that work usually? Because I imagine you might have to skip like a half day clinic or something to make this happen. Like how does, does it the, the, um, the defendant that usually pays or, or how does that work? Well, you know, the plaintiff's bar, that the plaintiff's bar, the plaintiff pays your, for your services. Mm -hmm. And then if, um, if the plaintiff attorney wins the suit or gets a settlement, then the plaintiff attorney gets some money and then uses that money to pay for the experts that that plaintiff's attorney needed. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, the money goes to the plaintiff. Right. Uh, on the defense side, that's usually covered by insurance companies Interesting. or, or by, by state entities. Interesting. But it's usually insurance companies. And they, that's usually a very big, broad, nameless you know, like Allstate or, you know, or right, homeowners or something like that. Yeah. Right. So is it usually, or is it always a case where either the plaintiff's attorney or the defendant's attorney is the one that kind of asks for you to be an expert witness? Or yes. Is it, ever a, is it ever a joint thing where they both say? Oh, no. Okay. It's never joint. Although you can be asked serially first by the, by the, <laughs> plaintiff and then by the defense or the other way around uh, because they, they both perceive that you might have be on their side. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. So I know the next question you're going to ask me, which is how do you decide whether it's worthwhile accepting the offer to, to testify? So one of the first thing is you really have to convince yourself that you can take a position where you feel comfortable and you think is morally correct and so on, doing it just sort of otherwise, you know, for any other reason, I think is not acceptable. It's got to be that you really feel down deeply in your soul that something that, that, that you're, you're, you're going to help mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. are, are you usually given the details of the case before accepting or refusing? Yes. Okay. But you may have looked at the case and not realized all the complexities of it. And that has happened to me where I accepted to look at it and then I looked at it and I thought, oh my God, this is much more complicated and I was wrong to even accept it. And then I've had to say, I, I'm sorry, I have to back out. And, you know, that's what that's, that's fair. Right. So logistically, what does it, what does it look like for you? Like, let's say that, you know, someone comes to you, you accept it being an expert witness do they essentially just kind of hand you the all the case files that are relevant, and then you review them, and then do you kind of write a uh, an opinion on what happened? Okay, so uh, uh, up to the very last sentence that you said, you were correct. Okay. Usually, attorneys do not want you to write anything down uh -huh. <clears throat> because that is discoverable information. Once you've written it down, the other side can see it. Mm -hmm. 
So what they prefer you to do is to just speak to them over the telephone or on Zoom or in person. And so, you know, then they can evaluate whether you are useful to their case. Interesting. You know, they will drop you if they think you're not useful. Interesting. Remember, this is advocacy. Right. Right. So even, so if you tell them something they don't like, then it's bye-bye probably. Yeah, that or they talk to you and they say, gee, you know, this guy, Ben Young, he was great over the phone. Uh, but I think in person, not going to do well in front of a jury. Thank you very much. You're out. Interesting. Okay. So when, when you're causing, like if you actually follow through with being an expert witness, you're always testifying in front of a jury. It's not just like uh, something done remotely or with a written statement or anything like that. Yeah. The way these things go is if they retain you and you're still in on the case, then very often they will seek your testimony outside of the trial uh, environment. And that means a deposition. And uh, being deposed is under oath. You either will be deposed in under video or just audio. Uh, there, uh, more and more video is being used in lieu of appearing at trial. Gotcha. It, it'll all depend. If they think that you, they need you in front of a jury in person, they will insist on having you go to trial. And when you uh, uh, sign on to a case, you should be obligating yourself to appear in court. Right. And can you be examined or can the other side ask you questions if you were to appear in court? You know, to, I don't know what the term is. I don't know if that's cross-examination. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, the, the, that information will usually be gotten in, in deposition first. Gotcha. So they'll know who you are and what you're going to say. You know the old rule, which is that, that nothing should appear newly in court. All the testimony that is going to be used in trial should be available to the opposite side before the before, before the proceeding, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So now, can I ask? Do you have tips for how to be, you know, a fair witness? Like the things that you're that I'm hearing, you know, that the attorneys are looking to advocate for 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 their client. You know, it makes it sound like it's easy to kind of be pushed into sort of a biased opinion, like to persuasively argue one way or the other. When it sounds like your mission is to provide objective truth, so that things can be fair for everyone. So do you have any tips on how to do that? You know, Ben, you're really, as typical of you, you're really asking the right and the really probing question. This is very hard because when you are retained by one side or the other, you are bound to feel a certain loyalty to that side. And that can easily sway you. Uh, I have found this to be very hard sometimes. Just have to be extremely careful that you adhere to the facts that you and the opinions that you have formed, because after all, uh, they want your opinions, and uh, you've got to be very careful that you are not deviating from what you can really defend uh, as being truthful, as right. being fair. Right, 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 right. And you know, are there any pitfalls that maybe you've seen that? So that we don't say something that could be, you know, taken advantage of or misinterpreted by the other side or even by your side. I mean, the things that I have seen when uh, for in ophthalmology cases where an ophthalmologist is testifying for the plaintiff is that sometimes they're incredibly glib and they say, well, this was obviously caused by such and such. And they don't cite any literature in favor of it. And then comes the defense side and they say, 
Doctor, do you, besides your own experience with this, and your is your opinion based on any literature? And then they will, uh, then the doctor will say, yes, it is, the the testifying physician. And then the the defense will say, well, can you cite some literature? If you've gone on gone in unprepared, uh, then you know, then that's not going to look very good. That can happen on either side. Right. So right. again, you you just have to be. Be really prepared. I, I view this as a, uh, an exercise in scholarship. Right. Um, so I guess my kind of last question, you know, I know that a lot of things that, a lot of cases that where a lawsuit occurs may be settled out of court and then some, you know, go to trial. Can you give me an idea of which, what kind of cases may end up in, you know, which direction? You know, the, the, the ones that go to trial are the ones where, uh, one side really feels very strongly that they have a very good case. Because remember that uh, settlements are usually less than you think you can win at trial. So you have to have a pretty good idea that you've got a great case and a lot of money is riding on it. Otherwise, you're, it's not going to be worth your while because trial is inordinately expensive and, <clears throat> and very hard on everyone. So, most of the time, people will seek to settle. Gotcha. By the way, your testimony might be very important in determining whether a case is settled or not. Right. And, and that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's kind of like a, how much of a risk, like the plaintiff or whoever wants to take in terms of going to trial or settling for a possibly lower amount out of court. Exactly. And your testimony helps them assess that risk of going to court and possibly losing and getting nothing out of it, basically. Okay. Um, yeah, this was very helpful. It's the first time I'm hearing a lot of, you know, f uh, facts and like what, just like what the real world experience looks like with with lawsuits uh, or, or mal medical malpractice. You know, to, I think to a lot of trainees, it's just, you know, a boogeyman. You hope you never run into it. And, you know, on behalf of everyone, Dr. Trobe, we want to thank you for helping us prepare you know, God forbid um, we ever get involved in a lawsuit or if we ever called um, to help testify for a case. Well, I, you know, it's, it's a great pleasure to have this with you, Ben. I mean, your, your podcast is wonderful, and I'm very, very glad to be a part of it. And for the folks who have been telling me they hope to hear more from Dr. Trope in the future, we are hopefully going to get even more episodes with him featured out there. And uh, thanks again for everyone's attention and time. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time.